Hi, it's Laura Huey. Thanks for joining me for Sociology 9021, uh, a discussion on advanced qualitative research methods here at Western. Uh, you'll be happy to hear, well, maybe not. We left off in the discussion of ethnography by talking about ethnographers as um, storytellers. Well, when we hit the 40-minute-ish mark in these recordings, I, I figure you guys are done. Your brains are on fire or else they are completely exhausted. It's really tough to, to follow along for, for 40 plus minutes and I, I get that. So I broke down the ethnography discussion into two sections and I'm going to pick up from the discussion that we previously had about storytelling. But before we do that, I want to get into just talking a little bit about something that I should have talked about in the previous section, which is safety concerns doing field research. Now, as always, I'm joined here in my COVID quarantine with Chewbacca and Lucy, who have been hopefully sufficiently bribed. But unfortunately, it is early afternoon and they are awake. So there's a good chance we might be having some um, doggy timeout sessions during this recording. Let's get cracking. Safety issues. Number one, dress appropriately. Depending on the environment that you're working, first of all, it's also a respect thing. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in interviewing. But if you're working, for example, in marginalized communities, it's not appropriate to show up dressed head or to toe in Gucci. Um, first of all, you might potentially be making yourself a target. And also, it's, it's a bit disrespectful. So, you know, think about the environment and dress, like I said, dress appropriately. Be respectful. If you treat people, I, I think you should be respectful and treat people with kindness and courtesy regardless. But especially when you're working in certain types of environments where people are traditionally or have been subjected to a lot of disrespect. So when I work, like I said, in marginalized communities, I call people sir and ma'am. I, especially people that are older, it's, it's a common courtesy thing. And um, I'm thoughtful. I try to be as thoughtful as possible and I try to phrase things in ways that are considerate of other people's feelings. Now, I've addressed, I think, as I say, you should do that anyway, but it can also be a safety issue. It can diffuse a lot of tension. Again, if you're working in communities in which there, you know, there's a, there's a possibility of violence, uh, it, it just, it can, like I said, really, actually, I wonder if I have, the story. Well, I'll I, I, I probably have a slide about this later, but I'll tell you the story. Uh, a long time ago, I've done a ton of work in the downtown east side of Vancouver, and I was uh, actually not working that day, but I was taking a colleague of mine through a walkthrough of the, of the space in which I was working. And um, she had, she, for whatever reason, she was just having a bad day. She had a very sourpuss expression on her face. So I'm walking along and I'm pointing things out and she's just looking like she could kill people. Well, a young, uh, young woman noticed and she thought that my friend was giving her a dirty look. And, it, you know, I totally get that. And, and she, this woman felt like, who, who the hell are you people and disrespecting me in my own space? She was actually, she was actually threatening to punch the crap out of my girlfriend, out of my friend. She, she was, she was like, you know, screaming, cursing her and threatening her. 
And I decided to act very quickly to, to sort of dispel this tension before my friend got knocked out. As the young woman was crossing the street walking towards us, I said, excuse me, excuse me, ma'am, could you help? Could you help me? I'm looking for um, the Harbor Light facility and we seem to be lost. And immediately this young woman's demeanor changed because I just, what I had done was given her a con, first of all, I had respected her, which is what she wanted and what she deserved. And, and what we should, like I said, we should afford everyone. But second of all, I gave her a context for understanding why my friend might be looking so like grumpy, so miserable. The Harbor Light facility is a detox facility. What I did was I switched into the role of playing a social worker and my friend suddenly became the individual that needed to be admitted to a detox facility. All of a sudden, like I said, everything switched. This young woman suddenly became super helpful. I thanked her profusely. I was super grateful. And we walked off in the direction of the facility. And then we got the hell out of there. That whole thing could have been avoided had my friend had thought about the space in which she was in and behaved in a way that would not have drawn negative attention to her by like looking grumpy. I mean, the reality is in that particular space, there's a hyper form of surveillance because um, people are, because you are surveilled so much. So people are constantly reading other people's potential threats including to their status. So be respectful. Don't let yourself be intimidated. In that situation, rather than allowing myself to be intimidated, I switched into gear and, gave, like I said, and, and gave her an alternative explanation for what was going on and that caused everything to end really, really on a, a positive note. Everybody was happy. My friend didn't get punched. This young woman suddenly became not just... Um, respected but also as a source of knowledge to help us which you know was fantastic but also there's other situations i've talked last last discussion about the guy that was started yelling at me um i recognize that yelling at back at people who yell at you is probably not always a good uh it's not always a good maneuver and you you do that with at your own um you know your mileage may vary let's put it that way i yelled back not just because I have a bad temper, but also because I wasn't going to be intimidated by this guy. Because as soon as I leave the space, he's out in the street. And if he thinks he can bully me or intimidate me inside, he's going to do it outside. I'm not anybody's pushover. So I'm going to yell back. And then guess what? I think I mentioned before. And then later on, we got on quite well. Don't take unreasonable risks. I sit here like walk in covered alleys. I work in spaces, uh, for example, covered alleys in uh, Edinburgh, which is a very small laneway between two buildings that has a cover over top so you don't get rained on when you're walking through. However, that means that there's very minimal visibility and if somebody is, can come up behind you or in front of you and attack you. And uh, I have done that. And I don't recommend, I have no, I've been fortunate that I, I have not been attacked, um, but it's possible. Be careful, and by attack, by the way, I'm talking about being robbed, etc. 
Um, be careful what you pick up. And the example here is I use is material culture. This is a term found in anthropology, and it means like um, you know, sign piece, uh, pieces of paper or artifacts um, and so on that represent the culture that you're studying. What did I pick up? I picked up needle caps. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was working in the Kirkyard, uh, Canongate Kirkyard, where um, a lot of uh, heroin users would shoot up and they would discard the needles and the, the syringe caps, the orange caps everywhere. And I picked up a couple and I stuck them in my pocket. I don't know what I was, I don't know why I thought I needed this as for any particular reason. I guess I was playing junior anthropologist. This is during my PhD. I was really excited about doing my field research. Well, I kept those caps in, I mean, the chances of me becoming infected with a bloodborne illness were between slim and none. However, I mean, it's a stupid thing to do. And I kept those caps in my pocket for months and I would unwittingly play with them. Like they were like this weird little thing in my pocket I would play with. And I realized that I had actually traveled and gone through customs and everything else with these needle caps in my, in my pockets. It was, it was, and then I thought about it, I thought, what it, like I said, what a stupid thing to do. Be aware of hazards. Uh, the examples I use here are bed bugs and scabies, because these are experiences I've had. I mentioned that some of the shelters in Chicago are pretty horrendous, and one in particular was the worst. In the middle of interviewing women, I'd have to clear cockroaches off of my notepad. Um, I had women that say that they couldn't shake my hand because they picked up scabies from the shelter. And I had unknowingly sat down on a number of beds to sit and talk with women in, in their own personal space on their beds, uh, not realizing that um, they, they had bed bugs. And so, you know, these were, these were things that I had, it had never occurred to me that, you know, uh, that I needed to actually consciously think about. This, of course, was much earlier in my career. Today, unfortunately, I am well-versed in the horrendous ways that um, we treat homeless citizens, and so I'm much, much more cautious when I go into a lot of spaces. Now, we were talking in the previous discussion about uh, our role as storytellers. So in terms of bringing it all together, the biggest question, you collect all this data as an ethnographer and you ask yourself, what do I do with all of this stuff? Well, the answer is you tell a story. Now, I'm gonna draw on the work of a, a famed sociologist ethnographer, John Van Manen. In his work, he started working in oh, the late 60s, early 1970s. And what Van Manen does in a really great book on ethnography is he talks about three different types of tales that ethnographers tell. In classic uh, ethnography, which Van Manen calls realist tales, he argues that this is the most prominent and popular form of ethnographic writing. Chewy, I can hear him growling. Come, come here, Chewy, come. Come, come on. He's looking at me like, unless you have a treat, shut up. All right, well, maybe we can actually get through without him going off on the dog walking down the street. So in realist tales, a single author, properly credentialed, so a professor of, at Princeton, blah, 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 um, typically narr narrates a dispassionate portrait of a people. And they, this comes like out of anthropology and the classic text by people like Margaret Mead. So 
in realist stories or realist tales, the author is absent from the finished text. It's like this sort of uh, so-called objective eye in the sky that's relating uh, their observations of what they see on the ground. Um, he, Van Mana says, the realist documentary style plugs minute mundane details of everyday life into more or less standard categories. Realist writers strive to produce what is, has been termed the native's point of view. Again, this is out of anthropology. Um, but the ethnographer has the final authoritative, sometimes godlike word on how to present and interpret the, the culture. Self-reflection and doubt are not central matters in realist tales. So we were talking about standpoint epistemology in the last discussion or in one of the previous discussions, or we could just call it standpoint because I like that much better, which is where you recognize that you are not a godlike creature who has an authoritative voice that to interpret correctly, truthfully, big capital T, truthfully, uh, the culture. So, but we still see a lot of these realist tales being produced. And um, I got a great example. This is from Howard Becker, the sociology of deviant scholar from 1963, writing about, um, that should say from, not form, the culture of, de of a deviant group. And in this case, the deviant group are dance musicians, which really tells you something about how deviance was constructed in earlier generations. Um, these are people who produce jazz music, uh, which I know, I'm sure a lot of you guys are rolling your eyes and laughing at the idea of jazz as being deviant, but at the time it was. And jazz musicians, had a, according to Becker, have a system of beliefs about what musicians are and what audiences are, which is summed up in a word used by the musicians to refer to outsiders. So in-group, out-group. Outsiders are square. Wow, this is, seems so dated. But this is a good example of that sort of uh, realist, if you will, take on um, ethnography. The second type of tale that Van Manen highlights is confessional tales. Uh, I love Van Manen, He's, he just doesn't pull any punches. He says, confessional tales are known by their highly personalized styles and their self-absorbed mandates. They try to demystify fieldwork by showing in detail just how they practice their techniques. Author field workers appear close at hand in confessional tales usually cast as students or interpreters of observed groups. Confessional authors often claim new perspectives that have evolved since the outset of their study, which in the end is similar to what they consider the native's point of view. And I have an example, and it's one that I've talked about previously. Eric Good. And this is from the, I mentioned that he had produced an article years later about what had happened in his research and it was called Sexual Involvement and Social Research in a Fat Civil Rights Organization. And this is him writing about a confessionalist tale about what had happened during his PhD. And he says one evaluation by, so um, he tried to turn it into a book. He said one evaluation by a reader hired by a publisher to evaluate my project proved to be especially enlightening. The letter I figured out from various stylistic clues, confirmed by not denying it, by the editor who solicited readers of the proposal, was written by someone I knew, a well-known sociologist. 
This reader termed the book I proposed as a polemical tract and not a social scientific look at the world, a chopped hash with 50% pop and 50% sociology of deviance. As for reaching the markets that good imagines, all I can say is fat chance. There was more and worse, but I refrained. I vowed in true Sicilian fashion to unleash a hideous vendetta on the man for his viciousness against me, but unfortunately, he died far too soon for me to carry out my vow. I just want to say this again. This was actually published in a journal article in a special issue where he put this paper out and then the editors invited other social scientists to respond. Needless to say, uh, Eric Good is um, probably currently unleashing a whole bunch of hideous vendettas on a lot of other people as well because they shredded this. But this is the confessional tale. Now, what, to what extent much of this is useful at, from a social science perspective in terms of understanding anything, including the research process, I can't tell you. Now, that said, there are probably some great examples of confessional tales. This ain't one of them. Then we get into the third category Van Manenen writes about, which he calls impressionist tales. These tales tell a story based on events remembered from the field. What makes the story worth telling is it's out of the ordinary or unique character. Impressionist tales hold back on interpretation and stick to the story, in effect saying, here is this world, make of it what you will. Impressionist field workers ask the audience to simply relive the tale with them, not interpret it or analyze it. Impressionist tales read more like a novel than an ethnography. The standards are literary, and the main duty of the writer is to keep the audience alert and interested. He, Van Manen, he's not saying we exclusively need Impressionist tales, but he would like to see more of them. I think a good example of an Impressionist tale is Alice Goffman's On the Run. Now, Goffman's book has been uh, rightly cited for like huge, huge issues um, in terms of what she... There's some, I, I think that there, there are some issues in that book that definitely need um, exploring. That is an entire hour worth of discussion. So I'm, I, but I just signal that as an example of a type of impressionist tale. Here's another one. This is Jonathan Skinner's Montserrat Place and Montserrat Nig. Nig, 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 Nig. I don't have, I'm, you know, like I'm terrible with, with pronunciation. Anyway, this is a study that he did on the uh, island of Montserrat. Wait a minute, is there more? See, I'm also ignorant, but ignorant of geography. I don't know anything about the Caribbean, which not, not nearly enough, I should say. I, know, I do know something, but um, anyway, he is talking. This is a, an ethnography of work that he's doing with a, a, as an anthropologist looking at a community in this Caribbean setting, and he writes, heat, hot, it's damn hot. It was so hot when I went to bed last night, and it's hot even now. Another morning to plug and unplug the fan as I walk around my apartment with the sweat glistening down my awkward body. It hits my skin when I disturb the lizards by winching up the shutters. They were built and bred for this place, not me, and the light needles my eyes, so I have to frown at everything like a frustrated anthropologist.
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know. I don't know. I I think good ethnography can have elements of all three. And again, I've mentioned Michka near sidewalk. I think it's a fantastic example of bits and pieces of all of this. But the difference between uh, I wouldn't say Dunier has the authoritative godlike voice because one of the things that he does do is he goes back to his research participants and involves them in the interpretation and correcting the mistakes that he makes, which I think is fantastic. So maybe we need to update Van Manen's uh, tales and add a fourth one. I'm not sure what we'll call that yet. Um, so here's an example of some writing that I, I, I did in, based on my ethnography. And it's telling a story, but it's telling a story in a way that's trying to reflect the social realities of life in the Tenderloin. And um, I'm not going to read all of this to you, but basically what happened is there was a lineup outside of a soup kitchen. And um, I noticed that this, this, I caught this man's eye and he caught mine and we smiled. And so I walked up to him and introduced myself and he uh, agreed to do an interview with me. And um, he was a middle-aged gay man living in one of the, the hotels in the Tenderloin. And I explained my work to him and he, yeah, he said, oh yeah, I'd love to be interviewed. His place had been broken into uh, several times by an ex-partner who stole all his valuables. And so when he called the police, the first time he called, the response was, this is the Tenderloin and you're never going to get your stuff back. So when he called to report another break-in, the police didn't show up at all, so he stopped calling them. So basically what he learned is, well, because of where you live, nobody cares. The police don't care. And so I asked Roberto if he was going to follow up in his police report, and this was the conversation. He said, I just let it go because they weren't willing to like listen to me. And I said, if you had a problem now, would you call them? He said, no, I just killed a person, laughing. And then make sure there was no witnesses and say, can you prove it? And I said, they'd say, hey, it's a bad neighborhood, right? He starts laughing. He's like, it could be anybody and nobody saw me, so there. Basically, when you think about a lot of the so-called um, lawless elements in certain inner city communities, it's not actually that law. It's not lawless in that sense that a lot of violence is retaliatory in relate, or a lot of criminal activity is retaliatory and it's meant to sort of, like you did something to me, I'm, the, the state, I cannot rely on the state to help me, so now I'm gonna have to do something back, so to teach you not to keep preying on me. And this is basically what, Robert, what Roberto is talking about. It puts it in a totally different context, just telling this story. Um, here is, um, this is a missing poster that, uh, uh, for a woman who had gone missing. Uh, this was put up near a homeless shelter in Toronto. And I put this picture with this, with this story, with this co these comments that this man was telling me. I interviewed a homeless man in Vancouver's downtown east side. And he told me that he'd heard of multiple instances of women and girls being forced into the sex trade. Girls being raped, girls being kidnapped and put in some hotel and tricked out. It's amazing the crap that I've heard that goes on. And so one of the reasons why the whole issue around missing and murdered indigenous women and missing and children and missing and murdered women in general is that of, of course it is disproportionately 
marginalized people that are impacted in terms of when people go missing and they're found dead or they're found in less than um, great circumstances because they have been trafficked. Human, this is a basically about human trafficking. And so again, as an ethnographer, what I've done here is I've paired this man's comment with a photograph to sort of bring a story together that you start to see the relationship between the two just because of how I have framed this. I'm telling, indirectly, I'm telling a story. So I, you're going to be happy to hear this is a very, this is a relatively short discussion. I want to, again, end on a positive note. I want to tell you about the single best experience I ever had in the field. I was in Liverpool. You know where the Beatles come from, that Liverpool. And I was in a drop-in center for um, homeless citizens in downtown Liverpool. I, this was longer than a few months ago. Um, but what happened was some music came on, and it was the song by Meatloaf, um, which is two out of three ain't bad. And people started singing and, in like an, an impromptu karaoke session. And I joined in. And it was fun. This impromptu, we were just singing, listening to music and chat chatting. And then we, next thing you know, we were all singing and we were having a great time. One of the things about doing field research that I cherish is the ability to really meaningfully connect with people, even if it's for a short period of time. And yeah, and that's one of the things that other ways of doing research does, you don't get that same, those same ex moments, if you will. On that note, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you. Catch you on the flip.